Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Medicus. I'm your host, Neil Sethi, and on the other mic, I have my co-host, Mara Peterson. Thanks, Neil. I'm glad to be here. Today, we're going to take a dive into many topics, including how to achieve work-life balance in demanding medical careers. We have a guest today who we think is very successful at this, Dr. Bernadette Olivola. She's a vascular surgeon here at Loyola, and thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So, uh, Dr. Olivola, do you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Bernadette Olivola. I am a vascular surgeon. I have been practicing at Loyola for the past 15 years, and I am the director of the group of the Division of Vascular Surgery at Loyola. Very nice. So can you explain vascular surgery a little bit? Because I think there's multiple routes to get into it, right? Correct. Um, And I think the field is best viewed as treatment of the vascular system as opposed to just surgery. So um, we refer to ourselves as vascular specialists or uh, vascular surgeons and endovascular specialists. But the key is uh, we are trained to identify uh, reasons for screening people for vascular disease. And once they have vascular disease, we are um, well suited to do surveillance of vascular disease and perform all sorts of treatments, whether they're based uh, with catheters or surgical. And then we generally have a lifelong relationship with most patients uh, in doing surveillance of the vascular disease for life. So uh, there are a bunch of ways to train to become a vascular surgeon. Um, Most of those hinge on the surgery part of things. So uh, my own training, I uh, completed a five-year training program in general surgery. And then I went on to train at... uh, as a vascular surgeon uh, performing a two-year fellowship in vascular surgery. Students who are interested in vascular surgery now actually have a direct route towards training and can enter into a five-year or sometimes six- or seven-year program uh, that is directed uh, towards vascular surgery training alone without having uh, to do a general surgery training program first. Are either of those routes more common than the other? Yes. the vascular surgery fellowship is a little more common. If you look at um, if you look at how many training programs there are upwards of 110, 120 programs across the country where general surgeons can go on to train for a few years to become vascular surgeons. Last I checked, there's somewhere around mid 40s maybe of uh, what we call integrated programs. So those are programs where medical students can enter into a program to become a vascular surgeon directly from med school. Awesome. So what, uh, what made you decide that you wanted to pursue vascular surgery? Well, I decided somewhere midway through my general surgery training. So I knew as a student that I was interested in surgery. You know, it was mostly the technical aspect of surgery that I enjoyed. And so I was midway through a general surgery training program, and um, I had some really wonderful mentors uh, during residency who were vascular surgeons who loved what they did. And I think some of that just rubbed off, so I became interested in vascular surgery. And there are many things about it that uh, that drew me to that. I could go on forever about that. 
it is a wonderful career. I think it's I think it's very interesting. But there are some similarities with cardiology and cardiothoracic surgeries because they do have to do with, you know, um, the cardiovascular system, obviously. Was there ever, like, a moment where you were like, hmm, cardiology seems interesting? Like, how did you, did you ever have to differentiate between I never two? had a moment like that. Um, I think part of it is the basis of my uh, profession is surgical. And so... Um, my my interest was becoming a surgeon you know it was sort of um the technical aspects of that and then my interest in vascular surgery stemmed from that so for me vascular surgery is the ideal profession because there's such a huge spectrum of the technical aspects of what we do without any limitations in other words if i identify a vascular problem that i think i might treat endovascularly or uh, with catheter-based techniques, uh, I can do that. And, uh, and as a backup plan, or maybe later, or if that's unsuccessful, I have a whole uh, slew of surgical skills. So that's something that you, um, that you couldn't do in, in the cardiology field. And also in the CV surgery field, um, all the endovascular minimally invasive, you know, minimally uh, invasive techniques uh, that are based off of catheters uh, that's not a skill set that cardiovascular surgeons are trained at. So we sort of sit in this hybrid world where we have the capability to treat everything with a you know, whole slew of tools that some surgical, some less invasive. And then there's honestly a ton of um, aspect of medical treatment of my patients that, that we also are well-versed at. Sounds like a really nice, unique combination. of. It's a good mix. Yeah, definitely. What are some unique difficulties to this specialty? Um, well, it is a very labor-intensive specialty, so uh, there are lots of emergencies. And so part of my love for the field is, is really that, um, you know, the excitement, so to speak, of more emergency type of operations or interventions. Um, and not everyone looks for that in a career. Some people want, you know, a career that's a little more scheduled. So the, the lifestyle can be hectic and the hours are long. Uh, but ultimately the reward is feeling like I'm making a, you know, a significant impact in the life of a patient. Talk to us about that a little bit more. What, what type of effect do you have on patients' lives with these procedures that you do? And, and what is the importance of vascular health? Well, some of those are um, more lifelong, so more, more subtle changes. For example, um, someone might have difficulty walking because of pain in their legs, given poor circulation. And while they may not be at risk of losing a life or the leg, I can make their life better. And day to day, I can get them walking without pain by doing an intervention. Uh, at the opposite end of things, uh, another extreme would be someone who has a ruptured aneurysm or maybe a vascular trauma uh, that's life-threatening. And so there's nothing more gratifying than having a patient walk into the office and see me and hug me and thank me for saving their life after they survived um, a procedure where the, the mortality rate, the risk of dying is upwards of 50%. So um, that's a more, you know, sort of stark example. A lot of people think of surgery as a more really invasive 
treatment option for things, but it seems like you do a lot on the other end, a lot of more conservative conservative and preventative health measures. Right. It's a mix. Mm -hmm. And if you look at all the procedures that vascular surgeons do, uh, about half of what I do is surgical, making an incision. About half of what I do interventionally is based on, you know, percutaneous, so just catheter-based interventions. So, you know, one of the things that you're interested in is, you know, as just like other vascular surgeons, right? You're saving people from amputations, but it's inevitable that, you know, there are certain patients who will require amputation. So how do you have that conversation with patients? Like, oh, you're going to be receiving amputation, so it's going to alter your lifestyle, Mm -hmm. right? I try to focus on the optimistic end of things, and many patients are... Uh, you know, they've got wounds and they've got pain for months leading into this, infections, etc. cetera. Um, and usually when I have a conversation like that, I make it clear to the patient that we've really uh, reached our limit in terms of options for saving the leg. But I try to look at the upside and basically say, okay, um, if this is an inevitable next step, let's focus on rehabilitation because the goal is to get you up and moving, and for many patients, um, that's the goal, and they can see past that. And we do counseling before procedures like amputations, or they have, uh, you know, support groups, or they can meet with physical therapists or other people to get an idea about what their life will be like afterwards. So I try to focus on the rehabilitation oftentimes. Sounds like a pretty important mindset when you're dealing with something like that. Are there any conditions that you love treating and why are they special to you? Well, I have a particular focus on this uh, exact uh, topic that we're talking about. And uh, so we refer to it as limb salvage. So, uh, so basically this is a, this is a huge problem, um, especially in the U.S. with the prevalence of diabetes and obesity and all the comorbidities that we see. And so I enjoy seeing that patient who maybe was advised elsewhere to undergo an amputation and looking at them with a clean slate and putting together ideas on how we can reconstruct their vascular system to try to uh, save the extremity. So uh, I think that it's oftentimes creative planning because there are many different ways to solve the problem when it comes to vascular disease. So what is like the craziest case that you've ever seen, like something that might have been just out there? I don't know how specific I could get. Um, well, I can tell you about the case that, that caused me to make a decision to become a vascular surgeon. Um, during residency, I was sort of halfway deciding between trauma or vascular surgery, and it was actually a trauma case that just, um, I don't know, for some reason, I always remember this case, and it sort of tipped me in the direction of applying for uh, vascular surgery, but it was a patient who rolled into the trauma bay, a young man uh, with a gunshot wound to the chest, and um, he was unstable, and so we we opened his chest and we found a hole in the uh, heart and repaired that, Um, and someone who had very good diagnostic skills noticed on the initial assessment that he didn't have pulses in his left leg and put two and two together and realized that the bullet had uh, traveled through the vascular system and embolized uh, or, you know, traveled from the heart through the 
aorta down to the left leg. And so we made it a little incision in the left groin. We pulled the bullet out of the blood vessel and uh, we repaired things. And he actually walked out of the hospital uh, within three or four days after surgery and, and did great. But it was, to me, it was a, a case where I was really impressed by the ability to take an exam, just physically examining someone, put, put two and two together and, and address the problem and have a good outcome. Yeah, cases like that just give me such an awe for medicine and how we're able to make such an impact like that. Uh, do you think vascular surgery has changed a lot since you've been part of it, maybe in terms of techniques or policies or directions that the field is moving? Definitely. So I trained right about the time where vascular surgeons were transitioning to perform all these endovascular procedures. So uh, during most of my training as a surgery resident, what I saw was open surgery. And as I was uh, starting my fellowship, um, the fellowships across the country were all transitioning from a one-year program where you just learned surgery to a two-year training program where you spend half of your time doing all the endovascular techniques. So that, that prolonged the period of training. And so, uh, so it's changed quite a bit. And, um, and the vascular surgeons that are trained today are well-versed in all those techniques as opposed to 20 or 25 years ago where most vascular surgeons were trained only in open surgical techniques. So the, the field has changed and, um, you know, there there have been certain um, challenges or road bumps in being recognized for the skill set that vascular surgeons have since there are some areas that overlap other specialties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, I think the core of the field has stayed the same. We care for vascular disease. Mm-hmm. I think another thing that people think of as changing, especially in a surgical field, is that historically there was a majority male presence, and that has been changing. I think you definitely can serve as a role model for women who are interested in in surgery, and do you have a message for them? Uh, Well, I think uh, for anyone, I would just say pursue the field that interests you. So uh, for me, it's vascular surgery, Uh, but you're right. Unfortunately, my field is one that has really embraced diversity, whether it's, you know, females or minorities. And so when I entered the field, I would go to a, you know, a national meeting and I could pick out in the crowd the few other female surgeons. And now um, we have a fellowship training program here at Loyola and about half of our applicants for vascular surgery fellowship are women. And in fact, our two fellows here are women. Um, Two of our five vascular surgeons are women. Uh, so I think, um, I think a lot of it just hinges on following the specialty that interests you, and that's what I tell the students that I work with, as opposed to feeling like there are limitations. There are many different ways to uh, practice any field, and, and um, in most fields, you can sort of, depending upon what practice you join or what patient population you focus on, uh, you can change the, you know, the, the day-to-day life uh, and work commitments a significant degree. Yeah, I think that's a great message. Do what you're passionate about, and if it's what, if it's what you want to do, you're going to make it happen. So is there any specific type of advocacy that you do uh, to advance you know, gender e- equality in medicine and surgery? Well, um, I think in, in looking for recruitment, you know, of trainees and of other faculty. 
I think it's important to recognize the value of uh, a diverse group and the the benefits that 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 allows in terms of patient care and also interaction with colleagues and things like that. Uh, so when when we look at candidates, uh, we take that into consideration, and we're really looking to uh, have at least a group of surgeons that represents the patient population because I think we have a better opportunity to relate to the patients that way. Well, you obviously have a lot going on in your life. You're you're juggling a lot of balls, right? You're you're a mother first and foremost, you know, you're a wife, and obviously you mentioned that you're a division director here at Loyola for vascular surgery. So how do you create that balance between work and life outside of it? It's moment to moment. <laughs> it's something that uh, I think uh, all of us deal with step by step, so there's no perfect formula. And uh, I think in order to get the right balance, one needs to be one needs to feel okay with setting some work things aside for family and setting some family things aside for work. So it's impossible to be everywhere all the time. You also mentioned that, there's some emergency cases that come up, and I'm sure that you're on call a lot too. So, you know, say you're you're with your family or you're doing something with them, and then you have this emergent case that comes up. Like, how do you how do you step outside of that role and then jump into another one? Well, uh, first you need to have a family that understands what you do, and fortunately, I have a physician as a husband who understands that. I have young kids who know what I do. They come to work with me on the weekend to hang around the office. They, they know that I uh, save lives and fix legs, and so, so they understand that. But I think the key is when I'm at home, I focus on home. And, um, and then, you know, I, I, you have to sort of set your schedule. So if I know I'm on call, I'm not making all sorts of grandiose plans at home uh, so that I can be available and I try to maximize the time that I'm not on call in terms of spending time with my family. Is there anything specific that you do to kind of recenter or re-engage if you feel that one part of your life is kind of taking over at, at a certain time? Um, well, I think it's just sort of revisiting the balance and intentionally controlling it rather than letting it control you. Uh, so, for example, if I know I have a really busy week ahead and I may be at work late on a few nights, I, I make an effort to, you know, cut my other days short so that I can compensate for that and, and be present more time. And, again, it's sort of it's being aware of when things are uh, being, you know, neglected at work or home uh, to not let it get to that level. Mm-hmm. Maybe trying to be a little more proactive instead of reactive exactly. to all situations. Yeah, I think that's the key. Mm-hmm. What does a typical day or week like um, look like for you? What is your schedule? Well, I spend about uh, three and a half days in the operating room or in the procedure suite. So most surgeons spend a decent amount of time doing procedures. Uh, I spend about a day a week seeing patients in the office, and that may be new patients seeing me for second opinion or a new problem or patients that I've operated on or patients that I'm following long-term. And then I have plenty of responsibilities administratively in running the division, and I also have some significant responsibilities in the National Society and for the American Board of Surgery, so that gets fit in between things. 
Are there any specific strategies or habits that you've developed in order to deal with a schedule that has all these different components in it? For me, it's just making the maximal uh, efficiency of my time. So I try to block out time to do things that are not scheduled. For example, if I have a deadline coming up on a chapter or a paper that I'm writing, I try to block out time on my calendar where nothing else can get scheduled there uh, so that it's clear that I'm dedicating my time to that, for example. And so I think it's important to try to make that efficient. In other words, uh, and really for, for any physician, I think trying to just make the day efficient so you're not running five different places, you're you know maximizing the efficiency of what you're doing day to day. So, you know, burnout is, is, is a real thing, right? Has there ever been a point in your training, whether it was in medical school or residency or even now that you felt like felt like you were overwhelmed? Um, Not personally. Um, I would say that I try to keep that uh, awareness of of that type of thing. I actually serve as one of the resiliency coaches for my department. So uh, Loyola has a, you know, a formal group of individuals around the medical center who serve as a resource for for resiliency, but for me, it's basically identifying that I need time to re- rejuvenate and setting aside a time. So I set aside time to exercise. Uh, I set aside time to spend with family, and I set aside some time that I'm by myself doing something. You know, whether it's reading a book or doing something that um, allows me to decompress. Yeah, as medical students, we're something that um, they push at our school here is for us to develop these habits now so that when we um, get further down into our careers, we already have those habits um, under control. You're part of the Transcendental Meditation course at Loyola? Right. Well, I entered into a study that looked at the the use of Transcendental Meditation in physicians, and so I went through formal training, and I honestly feel that it's, for me, uh, served as a resource to just sort of regroup, um, you know, sort of bring things down a notch and then look at things with a fresher perspective. Could you give a brief description of TM just for any of our listeners that might not be familiar? Uh, (laughs) That's a tough one. (laughs) So um, essentially it's for me being in an environment where there are absolutely no distractions and, you know, essentially clearing my mind of all the thoughts that are uh, you know, tend to be on your mind, right? I got to go to the store on the way home. I forgot to do this. I have to sign up for, you know, um, a volunteer thing for my kid's school. So this is a time where basically my mind resets. I honestly don't know how you do it. I got to tell you, like, I could never sit there by myself. And I would think that it's just blank thoughts, right? Uh, to some degree, although I'm sure there is a TM uh, specialist who could describe it better than I. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that um, burnout is something that medical students really don't realize is like a real thing, you know? Right. And um, I think it's important to overcome that. Like you said earlier, like instead of it controlling you, you control it, right? So with that said... Do you, have you ever like had a challenge that you've had to overcome? 
Well, we've all had challenges. Um, you know, many of the challenges that I think we experience as surgeons who take care of critically ill patients are, you know, sort of recuperating emotionally after a patient doesn't do well. So mm-hmm. for me, that's that's a big challenge. You know, we have very sick patients and uh, we, we have to break bad news to family members. And to me, you know, you can detach yourself from those things uh, to some degree, but deep down inside, if you're if you're human, you know, you you feel that it's uh, it's something that you recover from emotionally. So so that's a challenge, and there are some times that are more challenging than others. Um, but I think one needs to be able to sort of set that aside, you know, when you step away from. Um, from that situation and and not let it affect you or get you sort of in a funk and and carry it on to the next patient or to your family at home so yeah that's not something that we've experienced yet as students but we inevitably will so do you have any advice for us for how to develop those skills well I think um, some of it is a lot of it is communication so when you're in a tough situation like that sort of empathizing turning the table and imagining what the person you're talking to delivering that bad news is experiencing uh, and really trying to, you know, I think it's all in the empathy, really, trying to uh, connect. And so I don't know if there's one answer to that. And Mm -hmm. people, I think, deal with stressful situations in different ways. I do think that that's probably one of the things that draws people to or draws people away from certain specialties. So obviously, um, you know, it's, it's one of the things that, that we deal with more frequently in my field than maybe in a different field. So I think that perhaps personality types help to draw us to the fields that we can handle better. Are there any skills that you've developed throughout your career that you wish you could go back in time and tell yourself from the beginning, this is what you need to do in order to be successful in this specific part? (laughs) Probably saying no Mm, (laughs) more earlier. So I think as, you know, when we finish training and you get out into practice, um, basically the inclination, I think, is just to say yes to everything. So whether you're, uh, you know, invited to be on a committee or write a paper or take on a uh, medical student shadowing you, uh, or whatever it is, certain clinical, you know, responsibilities. To some degree, you have to do that to build your practice and to build your career. But uh, there comes a point where, in order to do the things that you do well, you need to decline some um, some other opportunities. And one thing that that I think makes me feel better about that is I never decline. Uh, an offer to get involved at some level without offering an alternate. So whether it's, and this is one way I think that is sort of nice to promote, uh, you know, diversity in, in those sort of venues. So if I'm asked to serve on a committee that I just can't slice out the time for, I might suggest someone who I think would do just as good a job who maybe no one would think of because they wouldn't come forward themselves. And so, uh, to some degree, that that makes me feel that I'm promoting the career of a, a colleague, you know, rather than just disappointing someone that I'm declining their offer to do something. 
That's an awesome philosophy. And I think you're definitely right where as one person, you can't do everything. And if you can somehow cut back to the things that are just really important to you, you can do a better job on those things rather than trying to juggle too many things. Right. So you also seem to have a prominent social media presence, especially on Twitter. This has been a more recent development because doctors using social media and blogs to communicate with each other and and the public, right? We didn't, it was, it almost seemed like it was taboo like many years ago. Right. right. And I think, uh, you know, I still think twice before I post something and I, th- I would say I'm very conservative. What, whereas I like to post uh, news or interesting articles or things. I, I myself have tended not to post any patient related things because I get concerned about um, violating patient privacy. And so, and that's something that's been scrutinized um, when it comes to physicians posting things. But I honestly, what you see out there on the social media is sort of, I think, providing information about my group and also some opinion on some of the um, interesting developments in my field. But also, I've, I think I've benefited a significant degree from some of the social media groups, private groups, where, you know, vascular surgeons are asking opinions or things that you won't see out there. So offline, there are groups of female physicians. There's actually a, a group of female vascular surgeons who have sort of come together and, and share tips and tricks and, uh, you know, things specific to certain types of vascular procedures or cases. And it's sort of nice to have a sounding board that's bigger than the smaller group. So I think that's, that would be uh, very valuable and inspiring to some of our listeners. Do you mind sharing with us, you know, what, what Twitter handles that they could follow? Well, uh, I have my personal uh, Twitter, hand, Twitter handle that's at Bialavola, uh, B-A-U-L-I-V-O-L-A. And then we have a division Twitter handle uh, at Loyola Vascular that shares all sorts of news about the developments in our division, things that we're proud of when our you know, division members win an award or um, we just posted something yesterday. One of our students presented a oral presentation at the research day at at the school of medicine so those are things that i like to that i like to put out there so that people can see what our group is doing our listeners should definitely go give those twitter handles a follow um i think there's a lot to learn from dr alivola and it's at loyola vascular at loyola vascular at loyola vascular i'm gonna go follow it (laughs) great What are some things that you're passionate about outside of medicine? Well, I have two young kids, so a lot of my spare time is spent with them. And so it's very easy to spend all your spare time uh, watching gymnastics, soccer games, uh, things like that. So a lot of my spare time is spent there. We like to travel as a family, so spent some time recently uh, at the Grand Canyon. Of course, like anyone else, I have you know family elsewhere across the country, so we try to visit when we can. Um, myself, I do Pilates regularly, and and so I like to isolate time to to do that for my own well being. So those are the main things that that take up my spare time that I enjoy doing. What'd you think of the Grand Canyon? I'm from Arizona, so I think well, it's somewhere everybody should go. It was snowing. Oh, California is wow. better. <laughs> Just a shameless plug. It was snowing, uh, but it was a wonderful trip. Mm-hmm. Yes, it still can be pretty with the snow, but oh, yeah, yeah, it gets cold up there. Yes, it sure does. Uh, are you are you originally from Chicago? I actually grew up on Long Island, New York, 
And so what brought me to the Midwest was medical school. So I moved to St. Louis for medical school, and then I caught the Midwest bug. So uh, to me, it was a very warm you know, environment, very different from uh, New York. And so when I looked for a job after training, I really targeted a few Midwest cities that I thought I would like to live in. Mm-hmm. So for anybody that's interested in going into vascular surgery, what message would you have for them? I would say do it. Um, I would say it's a fantastic field. It is. Um, it never gets boring. There's something different every day. There are plenty of different opportunities to mold the career through the course of a lifetime, focusing on different areas. And the need for vascular surgeons is huge. So Coming out of a vascular surgery training program, there are many job opportunities uh, per trainee, so so the need is there, and it's a fun field. What can a student do to get more involved with that, and is there anything that would be important to uh, maybe put on a residency application if you wanted to uh, apply into this type of field? Yeah, well, I think getting involved with the vascular group is uh, a key. So getting involved uh, basically could be anything from just reaching out and shadowing, getting involved in research projects early. I encourage students during their first few years to reach out and find a mentor in the field they might be interested in and get involved in a research project that they can carry on throughout the course of their training. Um, The other thing I should mention is regionally and nationally there are a ton of funded uh, student opportunities to travel to the various different society meetings and there are virtually every uh, regional or national vascular society has spent a huge amount of resources dedicated to a medical student oriented program so our national meeting we present all the science but there's a structured medical student program that does a really wonderful job of um, teaching students about what the field is like, getting them connected. Um, you know, it's great for education. So um, in the Midwest, that's uh, the Midwest Vascular Society. Mm-hmm. And nationally, that's the uh, Society for Vascular Surgery. So anyone interested could get right online and check those out. There's a wonderful website that can link you to everything vascular, and it's vascular.org. And that's the main website for the Society for Vascular Surgery but it links to all the regional societies. There's a med student section, a trainee section. Basically, you can learn everything you need to know about vascular surgery on vascular.org. I'm definitely going to check that out, and hopefully all you guys will too. I'm assuming the answer is yes, but have you been involved in research throughout your career? Yes. (laughs) Yes. So we have probably about 10 or 15 Stritch School of Medicine students working on projects with us, with our group. Uh, so I've done basic science research in um, uh, undergrad. It's how I er- earned part of my way through paying for undergrad was as a lab assistant. Um, and I worked on some basic science research as a medical student as well. Um, from fellowship on, most of my research is clinical outcomes-based. Um, but for most academic surgeons, there are plenty of opportunities to get involved, and it's part of our, our day-to-day existence. So there's not any day that goes by that I'm not thinking about one of the research projects that we have. Um, so that's also an exciting and fun way for students to get involved and learn more about vascular surgery. What has been your favorite project you've been working on? 
Well, there are a whole bunch of them, <laughs> but right now we're part of a, a multi-center trial that is looking at uh, limb salvage. So what we were talking about before that I'm interested in clinically, but it's basically randomizing patients to a bypass or an interventional procedure uh, to save the limb. And so um, there are a few trials that we're involved in here at Loyola that are looking to clarify some of the questions as to the best treatment in this day where we have wonderful um, medical management for some of the comorbid conditions that we didn't have when a lot of the trials previously were carried out. So, um, so those are ones that are exciting because they keep us linked to a lot of the other medical centers that are involved in the same trial and that we think will have a significant impact on how we practice in the future. That's awesome. Uh, so we'd like to thank Dr. Olivola for coming in today. I think, you know, she's given us a lot of valuable information on a plethora of topics like uh, life-work balance, vascular surgery, women in surgery. I think that there's definitely a lot that we could learn from this. So please uh, give her a follow uh, on Twitter at Olivola. That's at B-A-U-L-I-V-O-L-A. And follow at... Uh, Loyola Vascular as well. Hopefully we'll, we'll have you guys tuning in to more episodes. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our lovely listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or episode suggestions, submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient, doctor, relationship is formed and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.